Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. This week of the series is a little bit different. Instead of speaking with a business owner, we will be speaking with Vosa Rivers, who is a chairman at the Harlem Chamber of Commerce. Vosa also leads the Harlem Arts Alliance and has been an active member of his community throughout his career and personal life. Vosa's perspective is strong and unique, and we can't wait to share it with you. As I sat mesmerized by this articulate and passionate man, I kept staring at the poster above his head. It was from one of the many years of promoting Harlem Week to quote, you haven't done this town till you've done it uptown, so do it in Harlem. Our interview with Vosa Rivers, first vice president of the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce, might be the most inspiring one that Ellie and I have conducted. How can we replicate this man's drive, his passion to every chamber throughout the city? Vosa spoke of gentrification, the use of culture, the arts, to bring people together. It worked a hundred years ago and continues to do so throughout the streets of Harlem, from the east side to the west. Since 1974, Vosa and his dear friend Lloyd Williams, who is both president and CEO of the Chamber, have established relationships with every network in New York City and beyond. From the media to the libraries, theaters, restaurant owners, and landlords, the two men have been actively involved in their community. It wasn't until we had been listening for a good 30 minutes that Vosa revealed that he had been a member of the police department for some 20 years. Was there anything that this man had not accomplished that he hadn't participated in, people that he had not met? Throughout his career in the NYPD, he always remained connected to the arts and to promoting music and theater in his beloved neighborhood. And it is endless how many boards Vosa sits on including the President's Board at Columbia University and the multiple art institutes. All of this is done with the desire, dedication, and devotion to wanting to promote the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce. Okay, so Mr. Rivers, if we could just start by having you introduce yourself, please, and telling me your role here at the Greater Harlem Chamber uh, of Commerce. Boza Rivers, I am the first Vice President of the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce. I am the vice chairman of Harlem Week, one of the signature programs of the chamber. I am the executive producer of all of the Harlem Week major activities. Okay, amazing. Could you describe briefly, and I guess somewhat generally, if it's gonna be brief, what the role of the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce is? Uh, the Greater Harlem Chamber was founded in 1896. And uh, during that time, Harlem was a, had a different landscape, not only uh, in terms of its boundaries, but in terms of the people that lived, that lived here. Um, and they created this chamber to deal with issues of housing, businesses, um, education, public health, safety, all of those things that make communities communities. And over the years, uh, the business sector created this chamber for the businessmen who were involved in Harlem, especially around the commercial corridors, which was, at that time was 125th Street. And so, in its 122-year history, in terms of leadership, there have only been 
for people of color to head up this organization because, again, this is 122 years old. The black community started arriving in the 1900s, and this was founded in 1896. So it was a different community. But the the last leader before Lloyd and I got involved was a man named Percy Sutton. Percy Sutton was from Texas. At the time that Lloyd and I got involved, Percy Sutton um, was the borough president of Manhattan. Over the years, Percy Sutton also lived in Harlem, watched the decay and decline, and also its high points of this community that had inherited this wonderful reputation of being the cultural capital of black America. But in the 70s, there was a surge of drug epidemics. Uh, the real estate was, was, was terrible because people who owned the real estate at that time started abandoning their abandoning this community because of the change. So it was white before it was black. That, that's the short version of, of, of what happened. And, um, and as blacks started moving in and then whites fleeing, and then people who could, who could, people who could live better, who, who came to the community, started leaving because the drug epidemic was this bad. And in fact, in 1974, while Percy Sutton was the borough president, there was a front page on the Daily News uh, that President Ford said to New York City, drop dead, um, because we, the city of New York, was going through its changes and they wanted to get some more support, more government support. So when you think about in the 70s, what was happening in Harlem is just a small microcosm of what was happening at 42nd Street with the prostitutes, the drug. I mean, it was terrible. Percy Sutton, who lived in the community, Lloyd and myself, came to us. He was head of the chamber and said, you know, for all of us who stayed, wouldn't it be great if we make people feel good about themselves because we stayed? We, we're here now, and we are going to stay. And he encouraged us to do a one-day activity to bring people out of their homes. And it was in August, uh, uh, it was in August of 1974. And we created a one-day event asking all of our neighbors to come out, asking the artists in the community to come out with your artwork, etc. One of the things that we did on that first, on that one day, is that we decided that we would rename a street. So at 138th Street and 7th Avenue, we cut a ribbon renaming 7th Avenue Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard. That was the first time, of course, in the history of New York City that a street was named after a person of color. From that moment on, each year we started coming out always in August, just coming out, getting everybody to come. And they were looking forward to it. And as the community started revitalizing itself, became more popular, the state office building was just built. And what we were doing in the street, on the avenues, we moved over to the plaza of the state office building. 
And, um, and people asked from, well, you're doing one day, let's do more. And it grew and it grew. So we came a few years later, we were doing a week of different activities, something for the seniors, something for children, something about fashion, something about health, education, all combined in a festival which was so different from just coming out and enjoying yourself. It was also educational. And, um, and then through that, as things started increasing in terms of the commitment of, of not only, uh, the members of the chamber saying that they wanted to do more, but the community really appreciated what we were doing. So it became a few weeks and people said, well, it's Harlem week, but now you're operating two weeks. And then we said, we're going to still keep it that way. Then it became three weeks, and it was still Harlem week. So then people used to ask us and try to encourage us to say, well, why don't you call it something different? And we said no. And in fact, we love the idea that it is a week. We called it a week, and already we were at three weeks, and we still called it a week. And today, Harlem Week is a month of activities. Uh, it's always the last Sunday in July through the end of August. This year, we uh, produced over 111 events and touched an audience of over 2 million people. We know that the community appreciates it, but so also, so also the surrounding community. So we know that we're on the radar because we work with NYC and company, the marketing arm of New York City. Last year, for the first time, the governor's office came and said, you know, what we would like to do is our campaign will be I Love New York Harlem. So last year, for the first time, they created their logo, website, marketing, put a lot of marketing dollars, gave us 160,000 brochures to pass out, and they looked at a 50-mile radius of New York and they marketed and promoted in those cities on what was happening in Harlem. So that was a major, major accomplishment last year. And again, they did it this year also. But what's important are the elements of what, when you ask what does the chamber do, these events and activities also allows us to infuse the economics, the business, the educational, uh, the health issues. We, we take, we have symposiums and seminars in the middle of this festival. Uh, we have a children's festival, but we're going to do a spelling bee because literacy is important. We partner with the libraries in our community and we encourage people to get library cards because we know how important that is. This year, uh, we did something uh, that we were doing sporadically around restaurant week. We did, we created something many years ago called a taste of Harlem. So if you were at Gracie Mansion, you just got a little sample of that. But can you, if you could re, if you were around years ago, we did a taste of Harlem in the streets and, uh, some of the restaurants participated, but also some of the people who just wanted to cook and, and bring, and have some food outside of, of where they live. And, oh, yeah. and so their neighbors could do a tasting. And it was just great. It was, it was the, the unique things. We had no boundaries. 
We didn't have to answer to anyone. We did what we wanted to do in this community, and the community was extremely appreciative. I'm a son of Harlem. Lloyd was born in Jamaica, but we, he, he grew up here in Harlem. So when you think about the chamber, you have to think about the leadership. And Lloyd Williams, a childhood friend of mine, where we were both Boy Scouts together at St. Martin's Church on 122nd Street and Malcolm X Boulevard, grew up. Who would have thought that we would still be working together as a team? And and uh, and this has been a six-decade journey for both of us. And <clears throat> excuse me. And it's amazing in terms of what we've been able to accomplish, the friendships, the relationships that we've developed over the years. Um, Lloyd clearly um, communicates and represents us on so many different levels uh, with city government, uh, with the businesses. Um, and I have a different hat because I'm more of the cultural guy, as they, as they call me. And um, so my role has been to create another vehicle for the chamber, which is in 2000. In one, just before 9-11, we created an art service organization called the Harlem Arts Alliance. And um, as a Harlem Arts Alliance, we've had at our height about 850 members. So you could look at the uh, larger institutions, the American Museum of Natural History, the Museum of the City of New York, our Museum de Barrio, but you can also look at the small theater companies. We also, and dance companies that are here, Dance Theater of Harlem, Uptown Dance Academy, theaters, New Heritage Theater, National Black Theater, and it goes on and on. But what was very important when we decided to do the art service organization was to have a monthly meeting where the larger institutions and the smaller the individual artists, the visual artists, and the directors, choreographers could all be at the table. The educational institutions, Manhattan School of Music, Columbia University, City College, all have cultural programming. And what we had decided was that we would have a monthly meeting. And at that monthly meeting, these institutions that were members of arts of the Harlem Arts Alliance would not talk, but demonstrate by showing what they do. So you could come to a meeting and Dance Theater of Harlem is working on a new dance piece and, and you see an excerpt of that. There are filmmakers there that show a trailer to their films. And, uh, and then Broadway started calling. And Broadway, ever uh, engaged in increased audiences would come and they would join the chamber. Uh, they would join Harlem Arts Alliance. And what they would do is get an opportunity, if they have a new show, to bring the artist up to meet the community so that the community would be interested in going to see what they were doing. And they would do excerpts from the plays. So coming to a Harlem Arts Alliance meeting was like coming to a production. So for two hours, you were there. The most important takeaway from it was that the large groups and the small groups were at the same table. And as a result of that, some of the larger institutions got a chance to know and see the work of individual artists that they might not never had seen before. And as a result, the networking and the um, 
and the collaboration started happening. And it was just beautiful to see that. So uh, from the art scene, um, I'm just very, very proud that uh, we continue to do that. So on the business side, you have the chamber. And on the cultural side, you have Harlem Arts Alliance. Uh, in fact, uh, we do joint meetings together just so the business community would know what the arts community is doing and how they could be of service. I would love to hear about a day in the life here. When you come in to the chamber, when you come into the office, what, do you, what does that look like for you? My day is split between two offices. Uh, we have another office that I head up, which is on 135th Street. So it's only a block away, so it's not a lot of walking. And in my office, it looks like a museum because of all the events and activities that we've done. The other hat that I wear is I am the executive producer of the oldest black not-for-profit theater in New York. We were founded... Uh, in 1964 by a man named Roger Furman, who was a member of the American Negro Theater of the 1940s with Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, Harry Belafonte, and Sidney Poitier. They were all part of a theatrical company that met in the library right on 135th Street. Uh, in the, and it's now called the Schomburg, but back then it was the 135th Street Library. I attended that library as a kid because I went to the same schools in the community. And um, inheriting the theater, I, I joined the theater in 1964. Roger died 20 years later. The theater is now 55 years old and I've been leading it ever since. But one of the things that I was very fortunate to happen because of the, the reputation of the community, Harlem being the cultural capital, uh, I was able to, after uh, Roger passed on, is to look beyond Harlem and to go places where the reputation of Harlem was celebrated. And it found me in South Africa uh, during the height of apartheid, bringing over plays from South Africa to Harlem, to Lincoln Center, to Broadway. So as a result of that uh, experience, uh, the very uh, second play that I did went to Broadway, and the third play I did went to Broadway uh, as a musical and was on Broadway for two and a half years called Serafina. And... Um, as a result of that, <clears throat> we were able to just take a look at the power of arts and culture and how it impacts the businesses. Because now people were coming to the community, having an experience. Lloyd and I both sat on the board of the Apollo Theater. Percy Sutton rescued the Apollo Theater. The Apollo Theater was closed. It was like a part of that abandonment and everything was closed up. 125th Street was all boarded up, no businesses. And Percy Sutton made a decision that he lived in this community and that he wanted to rescue the biggest icon brand that we had other than the name of the community was the Apollo Theater. And so with Percy Sutton, Congressman Wrangell and others, they resuscitated the Apollo Theater. Uh, 
parallel to the Apollo Theater, there was another theater called the Victoria Theater that had been shuttered also. It was east of the Apollo Theater, perhaps 50 feet east of the Apollo. And it was in its original condition, uh, the Victoria Theater was the largest of the theaters in Harlem. It was an RKO theater, movie theater. A developer had made a decision that he wanted to open that theater. Percy Sutton had opened up the Apollo Theater, but now the um, Harlem Urban Development Corporation was looking for developers now to come into the 125th Street Corridor. Warren Blake, a retired detective, had decided that he would open up next to the Apollo, the Victoria Theater, and make it a, a five-plex, cineplex. And the, um, the caveat was that Harlem Urban Development Corporation, who owned the property that the Apollo sits on, and they owned the property that the Victoria Theater sits on, promised him that if you if you bring your resources to open up a Victoria Theater, it will be the beginning of a renaissance for the 130, 125th Street Corridor because others will start coming in. It didn't happen. The Apollo was there, the Victoria was there, and People wanted an experience. You could go to 80, 84th Street and Broadway. You could see all the stores as you walked into uh, the, the theater. You could come out. There were restaurants, etc. But during that particular period, those things did not exist. As, as a result of that, the Victoria closed. But be, before the Victoria closed, I was invited in to work with Mr. Blake on what kind of attraction uh, other than just showing movies that might be of interest. And um, I told him that I'm a theater guy, so you got all of these five stages, perhaps we could build uh, stages in front of the screens, and then I could bring in artists to perform concerts, uh, plays, and we did that. But a, a new governor came in, the state changed their vision, uh, and they actually closed the Victoria. The reason why I wanted to share that with you is because right now, the Victoria uh, will reopen next uh, year, 2020, first quarter. It will be uh, the home of the Apollo Theater Cultural Center. It will have two theaters, a 99-seat theater and a 199-seat theater. There are four not-for-profits who have been designated as tenants, one being the Harlem Arts Alliance, one being the Classical Theater of Harlem, the other being Jazzmobile, and the other uh, being the Apollo Theater Foundation. And in this facility that was closed you will have 220 market rate apartments, 200 affordable apartments, a 500 seat catering hall, wow. and 30,000 square, 25 to 30,000 square feet of space dedicated to the cultural organizations. 
So when you start looking at 125th Street, the big box stores are there now. Um, the real estate value has gone up tremendously. The side streets, the, uh, the avenues, especially uh, Frederick Douglass, has 41 restaurants between 111th Street and maybe 122nd Street. It's an unbelievable corridor. And that was all abandoned. It was all boarded up. The uh, Malcolm X uh, corridor now, it's the same thing. They may have 30 restaurants. And uh, a number of the restaurants are owned by people of color. It's exciting to see. It adds to the cultural landscape of the community. So all of that is now happening, percolating, bubbling, effervescently, and it's a fun place to be. I, I invite friends to come and visit, and they are just fascinated. It, it's, uh, it's, 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 it has a certain sort sense of magnetism to it with this history of people knowing what Harlem represents, what it did in the past, and what is it doing now presently. It's just a nice and a, and a fabulous place to be. Our, um, our schools, our universities are, are quite uh, well-received around the world, meaning Columbia University on the private institution side and City College uh, as a city university. Both board, Lloyd Williams and I sit on the board uh, of the president of City College, so we make sure, again, that the, 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 the chamber is represented and the arts community is represented we uh, we worked very closely uh, with um, uh, with Bill Bollinger, who was the president of of Columbia University. Uh, Lloyd and I, when he first arrived, we sat on his advisory board just to let him know and get a feel for the community. And these leaders of these institutions have been really great partners with us. So they look forward to every year to the Harlem Week activities because their institutions are being used for some of our most important events. Uh, Economic Development Day with the movers and shakers from downtown, uptown, and, uh, and, and in spaces in between. They all sit around 400 of them and they talk about the community. That started with one of the Rockefellers who saw what we were doing with Harlem Week and said, you guys should have an Economic Development Day and it still exists, and that's how we uh, uh, connect uh, uh, downtown and uptown. So our businesses, um, there are a lot of challenges because at the end of the day, the real estate up here is going up substantially. So it's, 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 it's difficult. Um, we had a really fabulous jazz club called Linux Lounge, and Linux Lounge uh, was owned by a cousin of mine, and he was paying uh, $10,000 a month rent five, five years ago. And when his lease expired, it went to $20,000 a month, and he just couldn't, couldn't do it. Uh, and if you look at a number of the other businesses, 
especially restaurants, because there's always a, a lot of large turnover in restaurants. So we see restaurants open and close. But there's a, um, there seems to be a group of restaurants on the uh, Frederick Douglass Boulevard that have mastered it. I mean, I don't know if they have long-term leases, but their businesses are, 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 are thriving. And, um, and we're very happy to, to see that. And a lot of them are members of our chamber. So we get the reports when it's difficult. Gil Brewer, our borough president, has been very vigilant around these landlords and what happens when these small businesses are there and has introduced legislation to try and correct this imbalance of what happens for small businesses based on the um, the, the <laughs> based on the control of landlords or the power that they think they could wield uh, uh, without having uh a jurisdiction that over, oversees what they're doing. So there are all of these things that come before us uh, in one way or the other, asking for our support. Uh, we have media partners from the New York Times to the New York Post, the Daily News, and um, and we can and we, we 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 utilize our media partners to also deal with a lot of of issues that we think are important. Uh, what are your hopes for Harlem and for the businesses in this neighborhood in the coming years and decades? Well, one of the things that the chamber also has it has a housing division, so the chamber owns thirteen properties between 134th Street and 136th Street. And, um, and it built a very uh, distinguished high-rise on the 135th Street, of course, Strivers. Uh, 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 in fact, um, it's called Strivers Gardens. It's a mixed-use development with over 200 apartments. The model that the chamber is looking at right now deals with community benefits and legacy. What do I mean by that? If you're on 135th Street and you're at 5th Avenue, on 135th Street and 5th Avenue, there's an elementary school. As you go west, there is a hospital. Kids are born in that hospital from the housing in this community. That's the hospital they were born in. And their first school could be right on the same block. As you go west, and across the street is a historic library. It's the Schomburg Center. It's all of that. But in the same block as the Schomburg, there is another elementary school. As you go to the next block, there is a high school. So that young kid who was born in, in this community is going west on one block. You go a little further west, two blocks further, there are four high schools. You go through the park on 35th Street, at Convent Avenue, 
There's City College. You can get your BS to a PhD all on one block. But the idea that you could be on one block, be born on a block, and go through your entire life with all of what can happen from east to west is phenomenal. And I don't think anywhere in the city of New York there is a street with two full-size swimming pools. <laughs> you know? And, and you left out the multiple churches. The multiple churches, of course. Yes. Um, and churches are very important. And for me, uh, uh, I go back to the history of arts and culture in the Harlem community because before there were the institutions and the individuals arrived in Harlem, it was the churches who were the sanctuaries but uh, for meetings uh, and gatherings and also um, it supported the arts and culture community. They all had these uh, uh, theaters in their churches. So... As a, uh, a theater practitioner now, I've gone back to that model so that a lot of the work that I do uh, are in the churches in this community. So, um, and, and it's been a great, a great relationship with the churches and they still play a very important role. People from outside the community look at Harlem and say, wow, this is convenient, they have a good housing stock, and then they want to come and live here. Well, what happens is that they might want to continue getting their cultural enrichment someplace else. They may want to continue to go to their favorite restaurant somewhere else. So if you're in a community and you came because of those cultural assets that exist in the community and they are free, why don't you take advantage of it? Why don't you continue uh, uh, exploring what the community has and participate? The, um, for many years, I was on Strivers Row, which is 138th Street, for 22 years, and, uh, and it was a historic district. Those brownstones were built by some of the most famous architects in New York. They built downtown, cross town, and they built the townhouses up here for the rich people uh, back in the early turn of the century. So I gone through the changes in that block where the building that I was in, built in 1890-something, um, we had tenants because we had a, 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 a large, large footprint. And there was a couple who, a white couple, both lawyers, who moved into our building, the Brownstone, about three years, four years, this be going on in four years. And they would come to the plays, they would go to things at the Schomburg, they were really taking advantage of the culture. And I was always say, you're a perfect model, I need to, to parade you around. I look up and husband and wife, you're always there. You've made a commitment, you, 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 uh, you, you put us uh, 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 on a receiving end of a monthly check from, 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 from you guys. And I said, and you're wonderful. So they visited me uh, a year ago 
And they said, Bozzi, you know, I think we have to move. I says, well, why do you have to move? He said, well, our new neighbors are not friendly. They look like us, but they're not here under the same reasons why we... Because this couple could have lived anywhere. They lived downtown. They lived in some of the, the better neighborhoods in New York City. But they had made a decision because they're civil rights lawyers. They had made a decision that this is where, and they're in their 70s, where they wanted to end their last days. They wanted to do it in Harlem. And they told me, it's supposed it's too gentrified. People don't say hello to each other. We don't know. The, I mean, and, and it was just amazing because we kind of whisper things like that among ourselves as long-term tenants. But I can walk down the street and I see someone I don't even know. And they look at me and they says, how are you? And I say, how are you? I mean, there's something magical about the things that we do. This is a different kind of community. So, um, but... Uh, the um, uh, the couple uh, that I became friends with, it was just wonderful just to see them. And they still come to the plays, but I haven't had conversations with them to find out if they left 138th Street. It's great to have a nice, a nice place to stay. Uh, it's convenient because the transportation is wonderful. You don't have to have a car here. They won't, they won't be a part of the educational system because they'll send their kids to other schools outside of the community. But there are some schools, uh, very innovative schools that we have now, uh, in the community academies, et cetera. That, I mean, we have a Hebrew school here. You, you go to the Hebrew school and you see all these black students learning Hebrew. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's wonderful. I, there are some gems of educational institutions all embedded in this community. Of course, we always a challenge with the, ch the public school system, but that's all over. Exactly. But, uh, uh, you really have some some really good schools now and good teachers who who are really dedicated to education. I have a I have a daughter who has a PhD in education and she writes manuals for teachers to deal with the diversity and etc. So the word I would probably use for people coming and taking advantage and then not contributing or you know would. <laughs> The gentrification, but we spoke before we started yeah. the interview so about my, the use of that word. Yeah, because my role in gentrification is that so you grow up as a family in the community like Harlem, uh, you send your kids to the best schools, so they go outside of the community, and they want to come home, and when they come home, they want better services. They want better transportation, better public safety, all of those things. But they're our children, and we're the family that grew up here in the community. Those are the same things other people want. May not look like us, but they really are the same. So as a result, some of the same kids aren't participating on the community school boards. They're not participating in the block associations, just like a lot of the new residents. So to say that 
because someone doesn't look like you, they're gentrifier, and then your sons and daughters are doing the same thing. Aren't they also gentrifiers? So it depends on how people look at what happens, and the use of that word, I think, is is a misnomer now based on what happens to a lot of us who stayed in the community, who who made sure that our kids could get an education and go to the best schools and come back. And their ideals are different than our generation. And you want them to come home and make a difference in the community. Um, We engage with other chambers across the city, for example, Last night, uh, we were with the Greek um, Chamber of Commerce because on our board, we have Jews, Greeks, Koreans, uh, or Asians, uh, Africans, Indians. They're all members of our board. And I, I brought this guy so you can take a look at our board of directors. One of our board members, is, his name is Luke Katzos. And he was a developer uh, for our high-rise co-strivers gardens. And Lou and I use culture to bring our two groups together. So one of the things, and his chamber of commerce and our chamber of commerce would do something uh, called uh, uh, a new century of soul. And uh, it would be the Greek orchestra, the Harlem musicians, and they would be at St. Peter's Church down in the village on 50th and and, uh, Lexington Avenue. And we do this concert every year. And the members of his chamber comes out, the members of our chamber. There is a woman's chamber of commerce that we do a lot of work with. There's the Hispanic chamber of commerce. There are the, 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 the overall, the big chambers from, they all invite us to meetings and Lloyd represents us and we're at the table. We are looked at and celebrated as a unique chamber. The National Chamber of Commerce has given uh, citations to the Greater Harlem Chamber as the most busiest chamber of commerce in the country. And we've won that award and that distinction numerous times. I, uh, I was educated in this community. And my first full-time job was at the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. And I worked there free year, then I was drafted to go into the Army. I wasn't in college full-time at that point, but I was in college part-time, but I had received a draft notice, and I went to Percy Sutton, who was a mentor, and shared with him that a number of my friends who weren't in college was leaving the United States and moving to Canada. So they didn't believe in the Vietnam War. He said, well, Vosa, that's an option for you, uh, but there may be other ways because there are exemptions that you could get with certain jobs that the, the, the cities need because a lot of men were going into the war. And part of that were certain civil service jobs and jobs in construction. So... Police and firemen were needed. 
And during that time, this is in the 1960s, you could walk into a high school and take a civil service exam on a weekend, on a, usually on a Saturday. And I went and I took a civil service exam for a police officer. I, and when you, after, when you're taking the exam, you get a, a, a worksheet. So you hand in your application, but you can take the worksheet and the, and the civil service newspaper was called a civil service leader would post the answers to the exam. So a person could take an exam, walk out the following week and look in the papers and find out how well they scored on the exam. So now I took the exam, did very well, got a very high mark, and now I'm saying I'll do that as opposed to going to the war. But I wanted to speak to Percy Sutton, my mentor at that point, just to get a sense of it. And, um, and I did. I, uh, I stayed out of the war, and I became a police officer. And three years, I became a detective. Um, and I was assigned to special assignments. One area that I was assigned when I was in the police department was getting statistical information for the chiefs of police or the chiefs of the various each morning, which actually looked at probabilities of where crime would happen so that they can deploy. So the night before, all of the crime statistics come into a building and then we would input the information. That became known as uh, something that is used by police departments all over the world. Um, and that is something that I worked on when I was in the police department. I actually did 20 years in the police department and retired uh, because the work that I was doing was so different and I was community relations and a lot of the things that are now in place I was doing, I went and got all my degrees, you know, through my master's degree. I was accepted to law school, but I was burnt out. I was tired. Uh, I also uh, uh, had three clothing stores while I was in the police department. In Harlem? Uh, not in Harlem, sad to say. They were on 13th Street. Lloyd and I were partners uh, because Lloyd had another business. So... We had uh, a place on 13th Street. We had another place on 36th Street. And then we had another place in the Bronx. Were they all the same store? Was it? Or it, was, was it? it was, it was, it was the, the name of the store was called Fibonacci. Fibonacci was a mathematician that I learned about when I was in college. And the name always stuck me as being something so cool. So, <laughs> so we called the business Fibonacci. Just a very different life. I, uh, while I was in the police department, I was going, uh, to college. Now it's called John Jay College, but then it was called College of Police Science. Uh, I became the captain of the basketball team there. 
I was uh, in the police Olympics. I swam in the police Olympics. Yes, nothing you have not done. And so all of that was happening during the course of that 20 years. And I was a part of the theater company. I was in the theater company in 64. I joined the police department in 65 and retired in 84. Wow. Are there ways that you think your work with the police department contributed to... No, it's me as a person. And, and I changed a lot of my colleagues of thinking a lot differently because they interacted with me and I was a different I was a different kind of police officer and they respected that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, that was part of, of, of how I existed in the police department. So looking back, if you haven't been trying to avoid the draft in the nicest of ways, um, would you have still chosen and are happy that you were a police officer all those years or involved with the department? Because um, it wasn't what we hear and see now. Um, uh, There were challenges, but um, they didn't impact on me as much because I was in a different kind of division. My, my my role was different. I could come to the community. I could talk. I could go and visit prisoners in, in, uh, who grew up with me and had access to go in and just talk to them and, 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 and say, you got to change your life and things like that. Uh, was it advantage? I'd see people in court that I knew and I could walk up to them and say, don't worry about that. Or do you have a really good attorney? This is a serious offense. And there were things that I could do uh, uh, by having a gold shield, as they say. And um, it was beneficial. And we just asked for the future. Let's, we won't go too far, the next five years. Well, what, what, what I've been doing over the last uh, two years is talking about legacy again. And um, I'll tell you another quick story. In 1985, when I retired from the police department, I was involved, like I said, plays. And, uh, and the first play we did to go, uh, the very first play was in 1984 from South Africa. There was a woman who lived in Harlem. Her name was Yuri Kochiyama, a Japanese woman who grew up in uh, intern in California as a kid. Her whole family, because of the, the, uh, the, 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 the bombings that took place in Japan and Japan's retaliation with the United States. So they rounded up all of these Japanese people from who were living in America, and they put them in, in camps. Yuri met her husband while she was interred, and when they were released, decided that she would move to Harlem, and she moved to Harlem. She used to come to my theater because we were doing this political theater in Harlem, dealing with apartheid. And she lived on 125th Street in the grand houses with her husband. The the kids, they had kids, and they intermarried with African-Americans. But one of the things that Yuri did was she would go into the prison system and read to political prisoners, asked if they had mail that she could take out to their relatives. Very, very committed 
to activism and to the struggles of African Americans. She came to the theater and she would bring things for me from prisoners who wrote plays or poems and just gave it to me. So it was very interesting. Two years later, a young man in, who came out of Harlem was 15 years old and he was arrested as a member of the Black Panther Party. His name was Jamal Joseph. Jamal Joseph was part of a, a famous trial in New York called the Panther 21. And that organization, those members of the Panther 21 were rounded up and put on trial for conspiring to blow up uh, uh, buildings within New York City. There was undercover police officers who worked in um, and infiltrated the Panther 21. Jamal Joseph was the youngest member. He lied about his age and said he was 19. So they arrest these guys and they arrest Jamal and he goes to prison because the, uh, the undercover cop who infiltrated thought that he would clearly testify in the favor of the police officer and he didn't do it. So he went to jail just like all of the others. While Jamal was in prison for nine years, he got all of his degrees through his master's degrees and he comes to Harlem with his wife to live when he comes out of prison. While he was in prison, he wrote plays because he was so young while he was in prison that to be protected, he wrote plays and, and you invite uh, the skinheads, uh, El Jefe, uh, the, 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 the Latin mob, and all of these groups, he would write plays and put them in his plays. And he was called, that's the play guy. And he was safe and everybody looked after him. So when he came out of prison, he was armed with these plays that he had written. Little did I know that Yuri Kochiyama <clears throat> had brought some of his writings to me to read when he was in prison because she would bring a lot of stuff just to read. As fate would have it, someone introduced him while he was shopping his place and said, where do you live? He says, oh, I live in Harlem. And he said, there's a guy in Harlem named Voza Rivers who just did a play on Broadway with these 35 South African actors and dancers because when Jamal was in prison all of his plays had 20 or 30 characters because he was writing for the prison population to be protected and I was introduced to him I got a call from an actor named Charles Dutton uh, who was a star in a lot of August Wilson plays, who was also arrested for manslaughter, did time in federal prison, came out of federal prison, got a degree, and eventually got a degree from Yale University and became this actor. Uh, and he called me and said, there is this young man who just came out of prison. I went to see your play. I met you. 
you don't know me, but maybe you could help this guy. And I met him. And when I met Jamal, I made a decision that I would uh, option his play. And um, and I wrote him a check. He just came out of prison now, and I wrote him a check for $500. It was like I wrote a check for $50,000 for a person just coming out of prison. And through that relationship, uh, we were able to produce on that particular play with Charles Dudden starring in it. Uh, Jamal went on to do a lot of writing, went to Sundance. He's the former chair of the graduate film program at Columbia University. He is a tenured professor there right now. He is uh, right presently, he's in the studio with a Netflix film on the life of Tupac Shakur. He's the associate producer. But when he came out of prison and met me, we decided to work together. I just retired from the police department. He was a recently, recently incarcerated person coming. We both live in the same community. We both love children and we both wanted to give back. So we created a youth group called IMPACT. And IMPACT is an ac acronym for it. Inspiration, motivation, preparation, preparation, activism, commitment, and teamwork. Over 2,000 young people have gone through our program. We have a theater and residence at Columbia University. Uh, we have um, our young people write their own materials based on current events from the headlines of the newspapers. They are what they call themselves artivists, activists, and artists. They are... Uh, were nominated for an Oscar. There was a film called August Rush starring Robin Williams, and my kids wrote the music, and they were nominated for an Oscar for Best Song in a Film. And then the next year, with John Legend and a whole bunch of others, the, the uh, soundtrack was nominated for a Grammy. And that program still exists. And so on the side streets, some favorites that we have lovely relationships with, Grandma's Place, Bo's Bagels, Lily's. The Ruggala, um, Joe Eady, he's been there for over 50 years on 145th Street, Pauline's Hair Salon, Urban Garden Center. And I just wanted to give you a chance to give some shout outs, basically, okay. and, and elaborate so, on this. First of all, Lily's, um, I'd have to look at all the names, but last night the Broadway League had a symposium on black supporting Broadway. And five of those names uh, were represented at this meeting last night because they provided food for this conversation. A lot of the small businesses and restaurants, we support in, in major ways by constantly putting them on the map, on the collateral materials that we do that people should really visit and support them. Um, they're not as active in our organization. There's something called the 125th Street uh, Harlem Business Alliance, which a lot of the smaller groups are members of that alliance because they deal specifically with uh, uh, programs uh, that enhance a lot of those businesses becoming MWBEs so that they can go after government contracts. They help them with bank financing 
etc. So the Harlem Business Alliance, which is like a sister organization for what we do, is one of those one of the institutions that the smaller groups go to. Even though we have members uh, that are, are are small, they uh, they generally get the kind of services that they want from the Harlem Business Alliance. Or if they're on the 125th Street corridor, it's the 125th Street bid. What what I uh, uh, what I'm thinking about when I look at the small businesses is how are they going to survive in this changing economy? And I think that that's the biggest challenge. So we need angels like our borough president, Gil Brewer, to advocate for kind of trying to level the playing field so that they can continue providing the services that are valuable, much needed, all of them, because they're part of the history of this community. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie, and this has been a podcast by Manhattan Sideways. If you're interested in learning more about this business or about the thousands of other small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, be sure to check out our website, www.sideways.nyc, and follow us on social media, at NY Sideways. See you next time.